The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, 2020 is coming to an end, so it's time to look back on the five biggest legal stories of the year. Court TV's Julie Grant and Ted Rollins are here to count down the stories that dominated the headlines, set off social justice movements, and impacted the legal justice system in ways we could have never imagined. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Court TV Podcast. And this is the time of year where usually I would like to do the top trials of the year. But this is 2020, right? This is 2020, so I can't do that because this has been such a bizarre year and it's impacted everything, especially our system of justice and and trials. So we can't do the top five trials of 2020 because I don't even know if there were five trials in 2020, to be honest with you, right? We'd, We'd really be stretching it. So... The approach for this podcast today is kind of like the approach that Court TV has had as a network this year, which is covering the big crime and justice stories. So what I would like to do is take a look at the top five Court TV crime and justice stories of the year, but I can't do it by myself. I've got to bring in my friends, my colleagues who have been with Court TV since day one of our relaunch and are surviving 2020 with me. Uh, Ted Rollins and Julie Grant. Uh, Ted, great to have you aboard. Great to be here, Vinny. Uh, and, and Julie, great to have you here as well. And and we made it. We've made it through 2020, unbelievably. Hey, Vinny and Ted, I know. Thank goodness for that. And looking forward to the new year, to 2021. I am. But as we look back, as we look at the top five, I want to start with number five. And I, and I think number five, we can't avoid it. It was the COVID shutdown. The COVID shutdown of our system of justice. And to me, I never imagined that this could happen. And I remember when it was first happening and they said, you know, a couple of weeks or maybe a month, maybe a couple months. I was like, okay, I could see that happening. But here we are. And I can't believe that all these jurisdictions from coast to coast have shut down criminal trials. I mean, I remember thinking, oh, the defense bar, they're going to be jumping up and down saying, speedy trial, speedy trial, speedy trial. But Julie, they haven't. Everyone's going along with it. Right, right. And you hit the nail on the head. I was thinking about this. The speedy trial issue is one of the biggest constitutional issues that comes up when we think of COVID-19. And first thing I have to say, I applaud the courts. I really do, because on any given day, um, and Ted Vinny, you both know this, courthouses in America are inundated with cases as it is. It is hard to move cases and dispose of matters, and everyone has worked so creatively together to adapt to this awful situation that we've been in. So I applaud everyone from lawyers to court staff to judges and everyone for coming up with these different solutions, like the phone hearings, the teleconference hearings, all of that, modifying things. If if they do do in-person trials. But when we think about, you know, at Court TV, we always want to dive into the law. And 
the Sixth Amendment. You know, it's funny, but I wanted to come on prepared to the podcast today, and I brought my little pocket constitution. And when we look at the she, Sixth Amendment, folks, <laughs> folks, she doesn't leave home without it. She is our our in-house law professor and constitutional expert. <laughs> well, you're too kind to be my friend, and it's funny. I don't. I, I keep it in my purse. I have since law school. Um, mainly because it's nice to be able to refer to it, right? If someone asks you a question, you can't think off the top of your head so fast. It's hard to recall it all. But I always recommend students, if they're interested in the law, buy one of these, like, got this brand new one on Amazon for like $3.99 because I spilled water on my other one in my purse. But anyways, um, when we think about this in the Sixth Amendment, so the right to the speedy and public trial, okay, both of those things are issues that come up when we think about courtrooms excluding people, having to do things in, in, a, in a certain amount of time because of the clock that ticks when someone is criminally charged and the time it takes to get them to trial, statute of limitations, all of that. And then the confrontation clause. Defendants have a right to confront the witnesses against them. And it's been interpreted to mean that face-to-face -face confrontation, not just in the form of cross-examination, but also think about impeachments where you see attorneys crossing witnesses and then they hand them a document. Well, how do you do that if someone is joining in via Zoom. So these are really, really tricky things that we just don't have solutions for right now. And you're right, no. that it's your point. it seems like everyone's going along with it because safety and everyone's health is what's so imperative at the end but, of the day. We want everyone here's my theory on it, though. Here's my theory on it, Ted, is that the people who would advocate for those who are locked up waiting for their trial date are criminal defense attorneys. And the way this whole COVID issue has broken down um, sort of by uh, political DNA is that all these liberal criminal defense attorneys are the last people who want to be in court. They are scared to death of COVID. And as a result, they're kind of looking the other way, Ted. Yeah, um, they're not going to look uh, forever uh, the other way. And I would just hold off on your congratulations. You can you could count on defense attorneys down the line using this to their advantage. Some have already done it, right? Some have already tried to, and successfully gotten their clients out of jail awaiting trial because of the pandemic. And once you do that, then it's like, oh yes, let's not go to trial forever. And so the it's that very small sliver of people that have not gotten out. But I guarantee most of their attorneys have tried to get them. And uh, the the back end of this is going to be the problem, I think is that people will then appeal later and say, well, I was convicted because I didn't have a speedy trial because of COVID-19 and my my star, with my defense witness was unavailable or blah, blah, blah. You're going to see this manifest itself uh, in the years to come. Yeah, I, I think you're yeah, I think you're right on, Ted. They will not, uh, you know, they will not bypass an opportunity to make an argument like that. But right now, what I see is a lot of criminal defense attorneys, they don't want to go down to the jails to interview their clients because it's dangerous and they don't want to be in a courtroom with other people. And 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 that to me, that was the biggest surprise for me. All right, let's get to number four, which is a case in South Georgia involving a young man who was jogging through a neighborhood. His name is Ahmad Arbery. And he was shot and killed by one of, one of the neighbors in that neighborhood. Uh, it was a father and a son in a pickup. Lee Merritt is an attorney who has uh, jumped on to help the family of Ahmad Arbery in this case. I want to take a listen to his take on this story and this case, and let's take it from there. For this hearing, 
we believe that racism may have played a role in the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. After this hearing, they removed all doubt. Uh, racism was the basis of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. It, lay, it lied in every uh, decision they made uh, from when they identified Ahmad as a jogger and said that that behavior was criminal uh, without, any, without anything more. When Ahmad tried to run away um, and, and, and Mr. Roddy said he determined that, that he was trying to carjack him as he chased him with his car um, to, the, to the point where uh, Mr. Roddy's attorney says that Ahmad Arbery appeared angry as he was being hunted down by men with guns um, as opposed to being scared and running away to the point where Mr. Uh, Travis McMichael, who was, who, according to his attorney, 30 to 40 yards out, said he made the determination that a mob was coming for him despite the fact that he was obviously running away from him before he lifted his high-powered rifle and shot him in his chest. There, I, each of these men's actions were almost entirely determined by racism and implicit bias. So this case of uh, Ahmad Arbery is, is one that happened before George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, um, all of the stories that have come afterwards. But to me, it comes back to this one. And this was such a huge one. But this one is also about a neighborhood, and it doesn't involve police. Ted, you were down in that neighborhood. Um, tell me, as, as you think of this story and you think of this neighborhood, do you think that this is the picture that will be painted in the courtroom uh, that Lee Merritt is painting here, that it's really this entire story, case and trial, is based on racism. Yeah, and I, and I think that the defendants are shocked by it. But last month's bond hearing with the McMichaels uh, really brought that out, that uh, there was racism in the blood of both of these men. And the decision, what, what I'd like to do on this one is stop and think, if Ahmad Arbery was white, and the McMichaels saw him snooping around the construction site, would they grab their guns? No, because they wouldn't be scared. Would they maybe chase him down? Yeah, maybe, and say, son, you know, come on, what were you doing in there? And let's get you, let's just call your parents or let's figure this out. Um, no, he was black and they, and we know this now because of their social media activity and their texts with their friends, um, they, uh, have a bit of racism in there in themselves, and it, it manifested itself. It's part of the equation. So I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a stretch by the prosecution to say that it was racially motivated. And I think jurors, when they see what we saw in that bail hearing, are going to be disgusted and shocked. And just it sums it up with the very end. Travis McMichael murdered, killed somebody. Let's say he didn't intend to. He got in a fight. He he kills Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad Arbery falls to the ground and is dying, literally dying. This 25-year-old is taking his last breath. He's probably conscious. What does he hear? He hears, according to Roddy Bryant, Travis McMichael say um, effing uh, racial epithet. The worst two words that he could say after this experience. He didn't say, oh my gosh, what happened? He said that. That, I think, is going to ultimately convince. Julie, how do you think this one, one plays out? And you think this story is ultimately um, in that courtroom going to be manifested by, hey, this was a case of racism, extreme racism that ended and resulted in the death of a young man? Sure. I think that prosecutors, especially after that bond hearing we saw with Gregory and Travis McMichael, with so much evidence being presented and these lawyers 
looking like they're trying the case. Everybody seemed like they were chomping at the bit to try it. You see the theme emerging from the prosecution, one of racism and hateful conduct. And they tried to paint a picture for the court at that juncture, and this was just at a bond hearing, that these defendants had this awful state of mind when they went and they grabbed their guns and they chased him down and he was shot dead in the street, died in the street in that neighborhood when he was out on a jog. It is disgusting, it is horrific, it is upsetting on so many levels. And I think the one thing that gets tricky legally for prosecutors, if they wanna go that way thematically, what's tough is that in Georgia, there is no hate crime law. This is something we've looked into on our programs. So it's not like they're trying to prove the racist conduct as one of the elements laid out that they must prove. It's not part of what needs to be proven. And as we're talking about this today, it reminds me that that federal investigation still hasn't concluded. So there could be federal hate crime charges that are ultimately filed. And at that juncture, obviously, um, the hateful conduct, racist conduct goes to the heart of it as motivation. And here, they can still use this going toward motive, certainly. But when it comes to elements, they've still got to hit all of that, the felony murder and the assaultive behavior that they're trying to allege. And we know on the defense side, they're trying to allege a story of justification, perhaps even a citizen's arrest is what they may allege to say that these two uh, thought they had a witnessed or had knowledge that a crime was committed and they were doing something to protect the neighborhood. That's the story put out there by defense counsel for both defendants at that bond hearing. So this ought to be a, a highly contested case and certainly a very important one because we're talking about citizens on both sides of this. Law enforcement is not involved. No law enforcement in that one. To me, it's it's the, it's the closest you're going to get to the George Zimmerman trial, but with a videotape. And I think where the defense is going to focus, there's there's like two frames of that video recording where you don't see exactly what happens. And that's where I think the defense is going to try to focus the jury when this trial happens. All right, when we come back, we're taking a look at the top five stories from 2020. And one of the stories we're going to talk about, an actual trial on Court TV. We'll be right back. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. We are counting down the top five stories of 2020 here on Court TV. I'm Vinny Politan. Still with me, Ted Rollins, Julie Grant, my fellow anchors on your front row seat to justice. And we are up to number three, which is an actual trial. We had an actual trial on Court TV in 2020. It involved a, a man who I think was famous for being infamous because he was a behind-the-scenes guy in Hollywood. Of course, I'm talking about the Harvey Weinstein trial. Let me start here, Julie. Just one word. Give me one word to describe the Harvey Weinstein trial. That's a really good question. Um, I'm going to One word. That's all you get is just one word, though. One word. I'm going to say... I'm going to go first. I'll go first. I'll, I'll go first. My one word is yuck. <laughs> yuck. I mean, between what we heard about and what was described... 
and what this what the jury saw and what was relayed to I mean it was it was gross but go ahead Julie one word Mine is yuck. Sure. No, I'm with you. I'm in agreement on yuck. Yuck, absolutely, all day long. And I would also say exposure. And by that, I mean this trial exposed this man for just a whole, I, I don't even have a, a word for it. I mean, just disgusting, um, abhorrent behavior, you know, for years and years and years. And it also exposed the casting couch in Hollywood. So, there was exposure on many different levels here, not just with Harvey Weinstein's despicable behavior with all these different women over decades, but then it also exposed that culture, that culture that existed, but nobody wanted to talk about. And there was a reluctance on behalf of so many people to go after these people in positions of power because of the superstardom and all the money. So the law at the end of the day was the great equalizer in it all. All right. Uh, I will concede that Julie Grant is the leader in the clubhouse right now with the one word to describe the Harvey Weinstein trial. Ted, what's your word? Uh, nothing's going to be exposed. I think Julie missed one of the meanings of exposed, though, that we saw play out. And that was that wonderful photo that, thank God, we didn't get to see. I mean, the only upside to not having cameras in that courtroom was that moment when jurors saw old Harvey exposed. Uh, <laughs> Yes, and, and many people who he encountered saw him exposed. That was his M.O. Hey, how you doing? Look at me. And uh, it was it was absolutely disgusting. It was also, I think, a, a fascinating trial in that I think it was one with the pretrial motions and the fact that the judge allowed the other unnamed accusers to come in and tell their story. Because without the avalanche of evidence of the similarities of the um, his M.O., I think each one of the witnesses had their problems. And, and, and the fact that the, the stories were similar enough and the, the level of disgustingness was over the top, that I think all every single juror at, at some point realized, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this did happen. I mean, this had to have happened. These, they couldn't have all come in here and lied. There's no way that this didn't happen. So this was a case, as you mentioned, Ted, with a lot of accusers. And some of them, people who came in, were fairly noteworthy. But what I found fascinating was they sort of had a look, which told me Harvey Weinstein had a type. And that, to me, that was very revealing. Maybe that's the word I should have used, revealing, <laughs> for, for Harvey Weinstein. But um, a lot of people also from Hollywood spoke about Harvey Weinstein and spoke about the case and what it means. Let's take a listen to uh, Rosanna Arquette. As one of the silence breakers, I stand in solidarity with the brave survivors who will take the stand against Harvey Weinstein in this trial. While emotion of the day runs high, I join these other women who were also harmed by Harvey Weinstein to say, we aren't going anywhere. You know, the other image that I, that I think about, you know, the accusers and coming together and having their opportunity to speak out was the feebleness every day of this, this monster with his walker going into that courtroom, Julie. And that's the image I'm going to take away from this. Like, here he is, finally accused. This most powerful man in Hollywood has been reduced to this cripply old man just trying to make his way into the courthouse every day, and the jury didn't buy it. And more charges on the other coast, on the left coast, and uh, 
Los Angeles County, we know he's going to face even more charges for sexually assaultive behavior that's alleged to have happened there. And so, yeah, he put on quite an act. I don't think anybody bought it. Reminded me a little bit of Bill Cosby, watching him when he would walk in with his cane and hold the arm of his publicist. Didn't he go blind? Like all of a sudden, Bill Cosby was blind during his trial, right? Right, right. And um, yeah, and he definitely made that apparent and really looked the look. And he, I remember watching during the first trial, I was in the courtroom and I would watch and he would just be looking straight ahead, like not even looking close to where the witness box was. <laughs> And I always wondered to myself, I'm thinking, I think he knows. I really think he knows. I think he's just pretending right now to not know which direction the witness box is in. We um, do it all the time. We do it all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But he was caught, too. Again, exposure for him, too, as well. I mean, these guys, they're predators. They are big predators. And I think what we saw really play out was a lot of strength and numbers with these different accusers all coming together and I, who I felt the most sorry for, Vinny, that whole trial, when we learned about that Ambra Badilana Gutierrez, who was not one of the victims who was a party to the case, but she was one of the accusers who spoke out. And in 2015, she made a claim of sexual assault against him in that county, same county, you know, um, up in New York, went to police and she even cooperated, wore a wire and he admitted on the wire uh, essentially to groping her and putting his hands up her skirt and he was caught but they didn't want to go after him um you know the da uh in manhattan cyrus vance did not want to prosecute and so i'm just glad that at the end of the day there was a prosecution absolutely and he was yeah all right let's move up to the number two story from 2020 the doomsday couple so-called cult mom Lori Vallow Daybell and her husband, the doomsday prophet Chad Daybell. Uh, this story twists, turns, and layers. Uh, almost impossible to get your, your arms around. Uh, there's, a, there's another podcast you can check out that has all the details of this one. But to me, ultimately, this was a story about two children who were missing and a mother who wasn't looking for them. And she was on her honeymoon and hanging out down in Hawaii with her new husband after uh, getting married while her children were missing. Unbelievable. But she was confronted by Nate Eaton from the East Idaho News while her and her husband were down in Hawaii. Take a listen. Lori, Nate Eaton with East Idaho News. Can you tell me where your kids are? Where are your kids? No comment? They've been missing for four months. You have nothing to say? You're over here in Hawaii? Where are your children? Yeah, why don't you just give us a comment? Just tell us where they are. Chad, where are Lori's kids? What happened to Tammy, Chad? Can you tell us what happened to Tammy? Why have you guys been in Hawaii for so long? Listen, just tell people what's happening. There's people around the country praying for your children, praying for you guys. Why don't you give us answers? That's great. That's great. That's great that they're praying for you, praying for your kids. What? You have nothing to say? So, Ted Rollins, uh, this is, to me, this, this little clip speaks volumes about what this case was about. It was, it was children are missing. Everyone's looking for them but their mother. And she's gallivanting in Hawaii with her new husband and a bag of cash. Yeah. 
Who's voting on these, by the way? This should have been number one in my mind. This is the this is the craziest story we've ever had. I mean, it has it's just beginning. I mean, she she and Chad could be facing murder tra- charges in other cases. And I mean, this one is going to be around for a very long time, um, and it's because of her. She infuriated everyone who started to follow this story, especially when, when the kids were missing. You just wanted to jump her into your TV set, grab her and say, where are they? And wake up, lady. And it was so infuriating. So now it's so fascinating. Who's running this? Was it Chad? Was Lori in charge? We're going to see it all play out uh, over the next few years. This might be number one next year and the following year. Well, well, Ted, I will tell you that we just got some mail-in ballots. So we're still (laughs) counting. So... While it's number two now, it may actually change by the next podcast. So you can still hold out for it there. Um, Julie, I know you've taken a deep dive into this story. And from your perspective, um, have you ever seen a story with this many layers? Have you ever seen an investigation with one woman and this many dead bodies surrounding her? Absolutely not. This one is one for the history books. These two sickened me from the outset. I, and I, I truly mean that. Like, in a, especially I think we felt, at least I know I felt, and you guys can tell me if you felt the same way, somewhat invested in this because when we started following this case, it was still in progress. Those children were still believed to be alive. At least there was lots of hope for them to be alive. And it was so upsetting and hard to even imagine. And, and Ted and Vinny, you were both wonderful parents. So I, I'm not a parent. And so you know, I don't even know how I would feel if I were one, but I can't imagine as as a parent, you know, not being concerned about where your children are. So that said so much to me, the fact that all those omissions, the fact that they were not looking, they weren't interested, they weren't cooperating, they weren't out there asking people for help. I mean, my gosh, you know, God forbid if, if my cat or my dog ever went missing, I wouldn't stop until I found them. I would be sounding the alarms and running up and down the street and enlisting all the help of everybody I could find. That said it all to me, the fact that they weren't and they were focused on themselves and what narcissistic, disgusting behavior. And I'm so glad that investigators finally found those children. Of course, I, I, we all hoped they would have been found alive, certainly. But at least they were found so that the family knows, okay, this is what happened. And so no one else gets killed. We need to bring these two to justice. If everything investigators are saying is true, these are two very dangerous, sick, disturbed individuals. And I just keep hoping every day that we're going to see homicide charges filed before they go to court on these other charges, because yes, they're serious, but at the end of the day, who's being held accountable for the deaths of those kids? And the autopsies are done. We know they are done. Why don't we have charges filed? Um, I'm waiting. I'm watching the clock. Ted, what do you think it's going to take for there to be charges here? Do you think one of the two has to perhaps come forward and fill in the blanks for investigators? Because, you know, the the allegation is that there are really three people involved. One of them is dead, Lori Vallow's brother, Alex Cox. He's dead. So the ones that are left are Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow Daybell. And I I don't know. I, I don't know exactly everything that investigators have. But at this point, I think you arguably 
could bring a murder case right now. Yeah, I don't think they have enough to feel comfortable of getting it. And they have both of them incarcerated and will likely for an extended period of time. So they're waiting for one to crack. And as soon as one cracks, all of the details will be filled in. And that's when they get them both, even the one that cracks. So neither one of them will ever see the light of day. I think they do have enough if they if they wanted to roll the dice right now. But they're being smart about it. They have time on their side. Uh, and, and, and by the way, if people have not followed this case, um, Court TV did a wonderful documentary on it. And uh, they should watch that. Uh, it's called The Doomsday Couple, Court TV. I, I recommend it. Yeah, and it's it's available on the podcast as well. We we have a, a, that whole incredible documentary adapted for the podcast as well. So we've gone through five, four, three, two. When we come back, the number one crime and justice story from 2020, and it's a story that has impacted our system of justice more than any story I've covered in my entire career. You know which one I'm talking about. That's next. An all-new true crime series. These are the true stories behind the trials. Renowned journalist Ashley Banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. We focus on the detail. We focus on the evidence. And investigates the murders, lies, and alibis that led to justice in the courtroom. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Banfield. All new episodes, Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. Side. Yeah. I just worried about the set of delirium or whatever. So that's the audio from the body cam in the George Floyd case. And when this video went viral, it changed crime and justice, policing. It changed our nation. And in the years that I've been doing what I'm doing, uh, behind a microphone and in, in front of a camera, I've never come across a case that has impacted this world. And when I say this world, the world that I've been working in, the world of, of crime and justice, more than this. I, it, it's unreal. The transformation, the discussions, the protests, uh, the outrage. Um, it's almost insurmountable. It, it's, I could not have imagined it because I remember the, the first time we heard of this story, someone said, yeah, there's this video. And then, then you watched it and you're like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This is really happening in front of my own eyes. And, and then there was the incredible reaction to all of it. And of course, we're talking about the George Floyd case, the death of George Floyd, which was recorded by bystanders who had cell phones. They posted it. Um, now, sub subsequently, through the um, court system, we've gotten uh, a hold of the body cam, which you just heard, and other vantage points of what happened that day. But let's just take a step back from that to look at the big impact of all of this. And Julie Grant, um, I'll start with you. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Um, what do you think is, is the long-term 
impact of the George Floyd case? Oh, that's such a great question, Vinny. Wow. I think police training, I think there will be changes to police training. Um, I also think something else that might, um, I guess a couple lessons learned, if you will. Um, you know, the fact that a video is taken in a lot of these high profile cases, we see video. It doesn't always tell the whole story. It doesn't always give us a complete picture. Yes, that video made us cry, made our hearts break. The video upset us for days. I mean, watching a man die, pleading for help, asking for the police to help him when they're holding him down. I mean, it is as disgusting as it gets. But what the video also doesn't show is what was in his system, what were his medical conditions, what exactly caused his death. That's going to be in dispute. So I think that there is a lesson to be learned that, yes, the video can tell us certain things and teach us lessons, but it doesn't always give us a complete story. And I think the other thing I hope people will take away from this is the importance of obeying police commands. They're in place for a reason. They're in place to keep us safe as citizens, not just to keep police safe, but to keep us safe. And when I couldn't get past the fact that this started over a counterfeit $20 bill, I, I kept saying to myself, my gosh, this should have been a summons. This should have been a summons. And maybe it could have been a summons, but things escalated because of a failure to obey commands from the outset. And it is just so, so sad. And I hope that we can all take away some sort of lesson from it, whatever that may be. Ted, what do you think is the, the long-term impact here? I think it changes the way police officers will do their job. We've seen this this take place before, these types of cases take before, take place before, but nothing like this year where we saw in succession, starting with the law and Arbery, but ending with George Floyd. And it, it changed, I think, not only Americans' feelings about policing, but police officers, uh, I, I do believe many departments and officers themselves are looking inward, what do you do how do you avoid a George Floyd? Because no one wants to be in this situation. No officer wants to be a Derek Chauvin. Um, and so I think it'll have a long lasting effect. I hope it does for all sides to um, look down deep. Now, I also think it is going to be a long road where distrust among police officers from the African-American community specifically is going to be around for a while. Um, because as we know, this case seems like an open and shut case in the court of public opinion, but um, these officers, maybe not Chauvin, but the other three have a very, very good chance of walking out of that courthouse um, being found not guilty. You know, I look at this and I, and I see irreparable damage to the relationship between police and um, many factions of the community. And I, I don't, and, and I honestly don't think it's just relegated to the African-American community. Um, you, as you guys know, if you, you, you know, I monitor and take a look at these police videos that are going viral day in and day out. And since that time, the real turn that I've seen is that the relationship is broken. Police arrive and no one's listening to police. Uh, they're berating police in, in a lot of cases. Um, and, and police are having a more difficult time doing their job. But ultimately, their job is to protect and serve. So I think it's the long-term effect is it's it's making things more dangerous 
for the entire community, not just the African, the entire community, because the George Floyd case and cause um, obviously first and foremost impacts that community. But the the torch was picked up and, and carried by many young people coast to coast, many people in so, uh, everywhere. People were like, oh, you know, we, we've got to change and this. And it has, has altered and irreparably damaged the that relationship. And Julie, how do, how do you think it ever gets repaired? I, I don't know how it gets repaired. There was all this talk about defunding. Then there was talk about rethinking. Um, and then we watch crime rates go up as, as we're doing that. I mean, there's this, this strange balance where police have to act a certain way if you want a certain level of crime. And if they don't act a certain way, things become inevitably more dangerous. And, and I don't know if we're going to find a, a balance point anywhere. Certainly. I think a good starting point would be for people who are in positions of power, people who have the ability to reach the masses with their voice, whether or not they're a politician or a celebrity or someone. There has to be a push for people to obey the law, number one, because a lot of these instances get out of control because there's a disobedience of the law from the outset and refusing to follow commands that are in place to keep people safe. So I think that is number one. The answer is not for people to say, nope, I'm not going to listen. I mean, can you imagine if we all just decided to not obey the laws every day? I'm just going to blow through every traffic light on the way to work, and I'm going to take what I want when I go to the grocery store and not pay for it, and I'm going to, you know, um, smack somebody who I don't agree with because they made me upset. No, that we can't live like that. We have to live in a society where there are laws and they're in place to keep us safe. So I think that is number one. Number two, I think it all starts on very small levels. And I remember seeing it in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh is one of those cities who um, their police department, I mean, I, I can't say enough great things about the Pittsburgh police. I was their ADA for a time and I've seen how they've made strides at trying to create that bond, that trust between police and um, the various communities around the city. And I think it all starts with the youth. I think it starts with starting out with, and they do, you know, mentorship types of activities and, and things where um, you start building that trust and that rapport early on. And I, I don't think there's any easy way to repair things. I don't, I'm not saying that, but I think that if there was more responsibility, one thing that makes me cringe is when we have these cases and people who were not witnesses to them are not part of the investigation. Maybe they're people who are civil, civil lawyers standing to gain millions of dollars when they wanna come out publicly and speak about the case and put forth information that is not factually based. That is a huge problem and that is undermining the safety in our communities as I see it. So I think people need to be a lot more responsible and that's easier said than, than done. We can't force anyone to behave a certain way, but no, I, wish, it, I wish I would be more careful about what they say. It's absolutely difficult. Um, I, I think, Ted, from my perspective, I think it's who's on that police force. I think that's one way to do this is to more heavily recruit people from their own neighborhoods to join law enforcement. But at this point, I don't know who would ever want to put on a badge at this point. Yeah, I think the pendulum has swung and it's going to take a while for it to come back. Look at just the Floyd case. Officer King joined the Minneapolis police force because he 
he wanted to make a difference. He was frustrated with the way that his sister was dealt with with the sheriff's department deputy. And that was part of the reason that he wanted to join saying the only way to change this is to get on in the inside. And four days into the job, he's now one of the most hated police officers in the country, former police officers. In fact, his own family, uh, some of his family has turned against him. His mother's still behind him. But it's going to take a very long time. And my biggest fear is that the, the pendulum swings because there is some sort of horrific attack against a police officer that's caught on video and people realize, oh gosh, these are human beings. We've gone way too far. I hope it, that that doesn't happen. But to your point, Vinny, you're seeing daily now in this in this country, people just basically flipping the police off when they are when they're caught red-handed doing whatever, it, speeding X, Y, and Z. They're saying uh, they're yelling at their, these officers, and it's creating these situations that can only blow out of control. And it's really, really heartbreaking to see that that, because that's not the legacy that George Floyd would want. Everything that we know about him is that he was a gregarious, uh, wonderful person that brought people together. Um, and his family has asked that people don't do this, but this is sadly where we are right now. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I think I didn't know that about officer King. That's, that's fascinating. A uh, fascinating fact about you know, why he joined. And that sort of undermines my entire argument, right? That, you know, someone joining for reasons like that to try to make it better. And and then this all happened. It's unreal. Um, I, I hope we get better. I hope there's there's a solution, but I'm I'm not hopeful. I'll be honest with you. I'm not that optimistic. I think things I think things have to almost bottom out. And I think without people from the communities actively recruiting and getting into those police departments, the only other thing that could potentially swing it back is an incredibly high uh, rate of crime and violence. And then you have the reaction. And But that would, be, that would be terrible because right now we had gotten to the point where crime was down and things were being so much better for so many years. But maybe, you know, it's got to swing in the other direction. Anyhow, that's 2020. Wow, what a year. What a year. Julie Grant, Ted Rollins, uh, it's been a pleasure uh, working through 2020 with you. I've, I've, I've Zoomed with you so many times. It's, uh, it'll, be, it'll be great when we're all back together in 2021. Thanks so much. Yes, miss seeing you guys. Thank you, Vinny. Enjoy the holidays, everybody. Absolutely. Yes. Same to you, Vinny and Ted, and same to you to all of our wonderful listeners. That's it uh, for this podcast. And this is the last podcast of the year, folks. We're, we're done. I'm done. I'm not doing any more 2020. We are, that, we are flushing it. Flushing 2020 away. Yeah. It's time to move on. So um, you can watch us on television, 8 to 11 every night. Uh, if you have a digital antenna, rescan it. You can find Court TV, your front row seat to justice, day in and day out. Looking forward to an incredible 2021 I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great, great holiday season, a great new year. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.